Hey friends, it's been Michael. We'll have to we'll have to describe this to people. It's been two weeks, um, but we're uh, welcoming you back to the Regeneration Podcast. I don't know if we ever made a claim that we would be basically consistent fifty two weeks out of the year. When I got into this gig with you, I had done some reading on it and said like consistency is not Emerson's uh, or whoever's you know hobgoblin of fools, um, small minds or whatever that quote is. But the uh, so, but that's basically what we've done. So I had some transition in my life, nothing bad. And then uh, last week we didn't put forth a podcast. Maybe some of our listeners missed us. What do you think? I missed us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they may have, I don't know. who knows? Yeah. Uh, but the world has changed remarkably since then. What do you mean in particular? I mean, two weeks ago today, when we talked, wasn't that Martin Shaw? I believe it yeah, was. Yeah, that was great. Well, he was something else, wasn't he? And I told you that there was frost on the top of my truck that day. Yeah, right. And since then, we haven't had any rain, and we had a week of temperatures around 90, which burned up the pastures, both my past, well, one pasture in particular. And then wildfire Mageddon came. And that bizarre stuff, yeah. Yeah, so these, these uh, for those that don't know, being in Michigan and upstate New York, respectively, uh, we were yesterday parts of the day. We were at the highest. You know, weathermen they 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 love creating scales for things, you know. But we were at the worst end of the particulate matter all oh, yeah. day. Yeah, wow. yeah. And they was, said was like the air really thick there. Oh, totally thick. I should. I guess I should have posted pictures. You know, the sun in midday there was not clouds, but just the smoke. You were looking at it, but it was um, it was. For a while, it was cool. Then it became haunting, you know. But the um... look like this, Mike. <laughs> yeah, that was the same light. Is there a sun in there, Michael? For those listening on podcast, he just showed a poster from uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yeah. Oh. Well, a friend of mine who's an Anglican priest or Episcopalian priest posted a picture from that, yeah, and he's from New York like. too. He's and he and he had it was a funny comment. He said, uh, "Anybody want anything from the grocery store? I'm heading out." <laughs> wow, yeah. Did you? Um, that is funny. Did Did you get it bad? Like we were really, really bad. Not as bad as you, but it was okay. bad. Yeah, it actually affected my breathing. Yeah, me too. I would yeah. say, um, my wife, when the weather changes like that. She'll get a migraine or a headache. Mine is usually in my, even though obviously it's more based in the lungs. I felt like my digestive tract it kind of messed up for a few days. And but and, you know, I spend most of the day this time of year. I spend most of the time outside. Yeah, right, right, right. Same. And we too, we had that crazy drought. We did. Uh, we were just in a lucky pocket today. We got roughly a third of an inch. Nice. Yeah. You know, wouldn't you be? Uh, you would die for that. I would. Well, we're supposed most, to get most of the surrounding area. It's almost like you. Uh, you used your uh, cloud buster. Well, here's um, the thing. I was yeah, tell me how it worked. I was trying to use the cloud buster, and I did get some rain. Didn't hit us. Well, it hit us a little bit, but got it pretty close. But then, you know, and I kept trying, and it wasn't working. And Bonnie said, "Maybe you should use it to clear the atmosphere before you try to attract moisture," which I thought was a brilliant idea. And I did. And today, I don't know if it's because of the cloud buster or just conditions changed. Today was basically clear, like a normal summer day. Yeah. Okay. So, and then we're supposed to get rain, I think, tomorrow or Sunday. Now, so. Cloudbusters, can you even try it? I guess when we did the episode on it, if you, if there's no clouds, you're, you're just, you know, as they say, no, you, can still, you can still okay. draw yeah. moisture over. Well, yeah, that was a good episode. We got a lot of comments on that one. People liked yeah. it. And today, today, friends, 
um, we can kind of seed. Oh, wow, Mike, I should show you. I'm broadcasting from a new area, so I don't want to mess with my computer. Uh, delightful, delicious. Uh, it's wet. It comes down. What am I talking about? It's rain. It's falling in Hemlock, New York. It just started again. We're getting right. rain. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a couple of weeks, or next two weeks, we're having, I think both names are familiar to many. We have Eugene McCarraher coming on, his monumental book, The uh, Enchantments of Mammon. And that I think could even come up today with our subject. And after that, um, somebody I've had the pleasure of spending long periods of time with uh, through the monastery and lectures he's given in the area, the theologian uh, William Bill Cavanaugh. Uh, he has a new book coming out. And uh, has I, have I sent it to you yet, Michael, online? Okay, it's an idolatry. So I'm going to send that to you. But I, he said, should we talk about that now or something else? We're going to talk about kind of the migration of the holy. And then we'll have him on again closer to the publication date of his book on idolatry. And we'll be the first ones to kind of break that type of long discussion on that. But uh, Bill is an exceedingly interesting guy and helps us kind of reconceive categories we take for granted. <clears throat> But the, uh, today we're going to talk, friends, about, uh, I was chatting with Michael before the podcast, it's implicit in so much of what we talk about. It's been mentioned probably over 200 times, but we're actually going to focus on sophiology, and I thought uh, it would be kind of a primer, and I thought we would hang the discussion on uh, the book uh, based upon which Michael and I met, which was The Submerged Reality. I had written a review for a common friend, Elias Krim's website, and I think he, I sent it at a busy time. It never got published. I loved your book so much. And I told you that I had a review. You called Elias and said, publish it. And then I also thwapped it on amazon.com. But the way I wrote that review was to single out, uh, having been kind of pretty well read in the Russian sophiologist, I singled out a bunch of kind of categories that I think unpack it. and. Um, so I'll be, you know, it's kind of like me interviewing you a little bit, Michael, but, you know, um, and I'm not going to read any part of my review, but, you know, Rowan Williams, uh, no dummy at all. He had some good thumbnail descriptions. He said, you know, that sophiology's kind of wheelhouse is the area of uh, overlap between the divine and created life when, um, and he, it's, it's, it's involved with the problematic. Problematic is a big word for Sergius Bogakov a lot, you know, that, uh, but how God creates a world that is both free, but not alone, as if drifting in space, far removed from the creative attention, uh, creative, uh, the creator's attention and care. And uh, what do you think of those ways of getting at it to begin with? Um, well, there's a problem of the problematic because it presents something to us that it doesn't have a received category for reception, I mean, at least in, in uh, traditional Catholicism, nor Orthodoxy, and even uh, Anglicanism. And you think no of place... any any intimations of somebody exploring? Maybe mystics talk about it without naming that this area of overlap. Well, yeah, it's. I mean, I, that's why it's called my book's called the submerged reality because I think right, it's right. it percolates throughout not every place in the traditions, but it's there. But but very often it's there and. There's no vocabulary for it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, through through history, there has not because you you can see it in Hildegard of Bingen, for instance. Yeah, right. I mean, she talks about the the greening power, mm -hmm. or uh, you can see it in Saint Francis of Assisi. But there wasn't a vocabulary to to articulate it until 
well, until two things. Until uh, Jakob Burma, the, the Lutheran German mystic of, of the early modern period of the 16th century and early 17th century, he was the one who st explicitly connected the Sophia of Proverbs with the Virgin Mary, right? And so that, that gets picked up, well, right away, it gets picked up in uh, German pietism, but especially in who are called the English Beamanists. Mm -hmm. And that's people like uh, John Portage and Jane Led and Thomas Bromley, uh, a group of people later have been called by the title the Philadelphians, the Philadelphian Society. Big interest of yours. And they were deeply influenced by by Burma, but they really took up this idea of Sophia that, that's in his mystical writings, right? And, you think uh, you can get to Sophiology just by taking the Sophia of like um, in the wisdom books and playing with it do you think is that what jaco burma did or do you think he was it kind of came from mystic revelations you know did he um, just read scripture and say wow you know nobody's talking about him, this we have to, mm -hmm. probably because because the the lutherans were not using the wisdom books right right so that's part that's not part of the protestant canon mm -hmm. but but you can't miss it in uh proverbs proverbs right 8. i agree yeah and uh but then, and I, and I think what happened though is a, this was the like the missing piece. This is this is the missing in Trinitarian theology. You know what is what's what's the unspoken force, and it's 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 the Virgin, right? It's it's that which makes uh, divinity palpable to the senses. Mm -hmm. So that's in one way metaphysically, it's. Sophia in nature, the created Sophia or uncreated Sophia, who makes the divinity palpable in the workings of nature. Like I mentioned before we went on the air that today I caught a swarm of bees. And for me, that's the, the, a bee colony is almost the, the archetypal Sophia, Sophianic image, mm -hmm. right? And there's such a wisdom that work, makes these things work. I don't even know how, it, how they do it. But it just, it just works. I mean, there's yeah. so many weird things with catching bees. One way to catch bees, if they're swarming and they're flying still, if you take a pot, like a pot and pan, and you start slamming them together, they'll come down and land. Hmm. Or and, and what I did, so I I, uh, I caught them out of a neighbor's lilac bush and put out a, a sheet in front of the hive I prepared for them. And I just dumped a box of these box of bees on the sheet and they just walked right into the hive. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of just yeah. it's stunning how this happened. Um, it, so, you know, on the bee thing, just, and it might even um, guide how you unpack this a little bit. You know, we've both read and we appreciate so much uh, Soloviev's magisterial, the meaning of love. Right. But um, you know, we, we've been, our, our brain has in our imaginations, more importantly, have been so, atrophied by a darwin but you know in, yeah. in the simple images soloviev draws of you know that the insect world i'm thinking of bees that it's the exterior you know that they, they there's one mind you know yeah and they have this constellated consciousness because all their definition is on the exterior then all of a sudden you get total simplicity of form on the exterior with the fish think of yeah. the simple way people draw a fish with like a triangle and that kind of yeah. oval and the beginnings of the interior right you know and so we have the interior life that's been developing um, 
more pronouncedly, certainly since the incarnation, seminally. And, you know, sophiology, you know, is, is one way I think of it is it's summing, um, summing us to the recapitulation of the the insect world. But when we get, you know, the insect world of the techno structure is different. We can go into that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But that that way that we're interior now, but also, and this is the Trinitarian notion of sophiology, it captures that portion of how there's total individuality, but this is the oneness that's implicit in the total right. individuality. Right. And, and and that's where I think of, you know, for instance, uh, one way I think about it is, uh, and, and, and it wasn't actually until after I wrote the Sermon in Reality that I encountered the work of, of Margaret Barker, who has been excavating First Temple Judaism. And her argument is that the worship, the veneration of wisdom was a big part of that, uh, that culture until the reforms of King Josiah, when at those reforms, there was an exodus of quite a number of Israelites who went to North Africa, to Egypt, right? To Alexandria. And that Jeremiah, is where yeah. the wisdom books were written, yep, right? Yep. So they carried that. And uh, anyway, so uh, so I think there's, there's, uh, there's that, but there's also hints throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, and Mrs. Bar Barker talks about this, that suggest that this is the missing part. And where I was going. So if you look at Proverbs 8, when Sophia or wisdom is accompanying God at the creation, right? And she speaks in, in first person. I was there with him when he created everything, etc. But then then Sophia is also present at the recreation of the world at the incarnation mm -hmm. when where in proverbs Sophia is quite literally the handmaid of the lord in the creation in luke <laughs> chapter 1 of saint luke uh, so or is it chapter 1 i think it's chapter 1 Sophia is likewise co help in o oh, participating in the creation recreation of the world at the Annunciation, right? Mm -hmm. Behold the be handmaid of the Lord, yep. right? Yep. Let it be with me according to thy word. Yep. And I think that's important. Yeah. And I think these are things we forget about or we don't, we we have never had a, 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 a system ready to receive that. I think this goes through church history, right? Because yeah. I think so many of the, the church fathers and the early times were, were were influenced by Greek philosophy, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of not only Plato mm -hmm. with the idea with the idea of the ideas, but with Aristotle and the idea of the categories. And this really right. became a big deal in scholasticism, right? You got to have a category, mm -hmm. right? You have to have a system. Well, then you get this Sophia thing. It's like, wow, where does this fit in the system? Mm -hmm. right, right, right. <laughs> I don't know where to put this. <laughs> so let's make we're going to make wisdom part of Jesus yeah. or whatever. Sometimes, sometimes when I map out what I think is a template from, it, it certainly if people want to get a basis for it, it would be something you're familiar with, Michael, is, you know, Barfield's template from original participation to alienation to final participation. If we look at that original participation, which could be seen as the, like the womb-like existence of a baby in its mother's womb or the Garden of Eden, or even the uh, the paradise in which the Buddha grew up, like a paradisal garden. 
Um, when we talk about in the, uh, the Oh Happy Fault of Adam, sometimes I wonder, you know, when you look at Greek mythology, or not even Roman mythology too, you see how the divine nurturing mother can morph into the she-wolf that devours her own young, right? And there's this kind of, you know, as there is, there's the dark side of something. So sometimes when I'm kind of in one sense mapping out this, and let's be honest, the same paradigm is there in the best of Western classical music. You have this original harmony, discord okay. is introduced, and then it's woven into at the in the final movement of to a higher harmony. But the um sometimes I hear myself say, and I've never really tried to unpack it, I'll say in the history of the church, because we talk about Margaret Barker, we read her and we just say, oh my God, this was lost. But I can almost see how the divine feminine at one level has to be repressed. The devouring mother, the Rapunzel figure who locks her daughter in it. Well, the Rapunzel's mother, this notion of how we can uh, helicopter parenting. So we repress it at one level to heighten um you know, the drawing back in to the oceanic oneness, when somebody was only a member in the early Greek city-states, you know, you would have only been known as not your, your individual name, Michael Martin, but Michael son of something. You were seen in a matrix. So to get to the glory of the individual, the divine feminine is repressed at one level. You know, then we see it in the book of Revelation summoning us forward. Right. How do you put something like that in conversation? You and I have never talked about this. I've never talked about it with anybody. How do you put that in conversation with something like Margaret Barker? Well, I wouldn't say repression as much as uh, exile. Okay. Yeah. And that's <laughs> Sophia in exile, right? Sophia in exile. I mean, because that, that, that term, Sophia in exile from the, my book, Sophia in exile, that, that's a idea borrowed from Gnosticism. And David Bentley Hart, who was on the show, has sure. a book based on exactly that idea, which the is Hymn of the Pearl and Gaia, the... <laughs> which we talked to him about. Um, but the idea, and, and it's not, not only exile, but it's humility, right? Because mm -hmm. this is the handmaid of the Lord. Yeah. Right? And God works through Sophia, you could say. And, it, and I don't know, people are going to say, so does that make Sophia a goddess? Or I don't, I don't know how to think about this. You know, <laughs> those, are your, those are your words. But Divine being, yes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think the Catholic churches and the Orthodox church are pretty close with our the way we think of of the Virgin, especially as co-redemptrix. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important, but but her absolute humility is what allows that to happen. And I think what happens, um, I, I often connect uh, Sophia or Sophiology to phenomenology, right? Because the idea in phenomenology is not to grasp, it's not to impose your will on that which you're beholding, but to, to allow that which you're beholding to awaken or unfold as you can, you know, in your beholding without, with resisting the idea to, to grasp, and not only to grasp in a way to possess, but to grasp in a way to understand, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, people get frustrated with me because they ask me for a definition of sophiology. I'm like, well, I don't know about definitions. Yeah, there's a guy I, I'm with you. That's why today's episode, that's going to be so good. Because again, neither you or I want to define it. Do you think Martin Shaw was brilliant on, um, you know, I asked him what would he change with like graduate schools in theology or um, or uh, seminaries, you know, mandatory courses on phenomenology, you know, and the praxis of it. And the other yeah. thing he said is like, you know, give 12 secret names to a tree. Right. You know, this idea of having to watch it for a long time where it presents itself and it kind of names itself to you. 
Well, he was right too. I think because this is I even wrote about this. Um, where he's when Martin said, uh, if we could have uh is the is it a is there a possibility for a phenomenological Christianity? Because yeah. if there's not, what Let's is sell it? the farm. A bunch of yeah, concepts, right? right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> if it's not discoverable, mm-hmm. then it's just we're just lost in somebody else's, you know, as Blake says, right? I must create my own system or I'm being enslaved by another man's. We're, yeah. we're kind of enslaved by the, the received tradition. And that's just why I, I think, at least the way I talk about sophiology, uh, turns a lot of people off or scares them off because what about the tradition? What about, the, well, those things are all good too, but you can't let them become idols. You can't th- become so solidified that, you know, you can't let go. I always, it's like with students, you know, when you, te- well, the hardest thing for students in college to learn how to do is to not write a college paper. So I have this one, you know, I teach them, I have one course, and I teach the composition course, right? Or teach them how to write a paper. But I have this other course I teach. I think it's called persuasive writing. And I tell them, okay, here, you're gonna, in this class, you're going to learn how to not write a college paper. But I don't think still, I ever wrote a college paper. But, but still, yeah, but your point to, is so well right In order to persuade somebody, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, how can, and they can't do it at first. Yeah. They're terrified. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, but my footnotes, I miss my MLA, you know, like let go of that stuff. <laughs> and that's, we do the same thing with, with received traditions. Uh, we use them as crutches. Yeah. Right? Even somebody as orthodox, I was reading some poetry of Coventry Patmore again. Nobody could be more, well, again, what does orthodox mean in that case? Cause he was so boldly revolutionary, but he, uh, but he, well, it's in Angelico Press's book. It wasn't his poetry right now, but it was the rod, the root and the flower. He knows that people can have, it's shocking to us, There, he knows people can have experiences that makes the formal structure of the church exactly analogous to like rocket boosters that eventually leave, you know? Yeah. Um, now, well, the, worst bit, right? is, yeah. the worst is some kind of self-proclaimed guru who pretends to leave those things so early, right? You know? So the worst is the corruption of the best, because, but we can spot those people. It's not complicated because they're really, really, really annoying. Whereas a saint who left it behind um is so nor i mean nor i mean it's just wonderful you know and so we don't have to worry about that stuff people we get we never progress because we're so worried about what if that notion of leaving some of this behind and i always tell people when this would be phenomenological those people are so easily seen by their fruits um who wants to hang around with them and if if you fall for one of these charlatans and gurus that's on you you know what need is being met um, well, yeah, that's but like, what thing. if you're? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, a scaffold, scaffolding, scaffolding is really important in building a cathedral. Absolutely. But eventually, it has to come down. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I'm a ta- I love the scaffolding. I don't want it to go away. I've spent so many good times, <laughs> good times with that scaffolding. Ah, yeah. uh, over that part of the scaffolding, we did this. Oh, it was so much fun. Take it down. I, uh, more often than not, with college students. Um, it wasn't some part of their Sesame Street lexicon, but the um, the image I use is, you know, uh, when, if it was Bert or Ernie, I forget which one was which, when all those great musicians came on, Paul Simon, Billy Joel, and, uh, you know, uh, the the character there, I think it's Bert. No, it's Ernie. It's Ernie. 
he wants to learn how to play the saxophone, but they say, you got to put down the ducky. He's always holding his ducky. If you want to play the saxophone, then it becomes this great scene. It goes on for 20 minutes with literally every great rock star ever saying, you got to put down the ducky, but that's my shorthand for some of what you're saying. Um, well, one of your whipping boys, Michael is Natura Pura. Yeah. Um, in, into, it's a whipping boy for you and a, a needed one as far as I see it because it, it puts a major obstacle in the perception of some of the stuff you're talking about. And we'll talk about perception more in a little bit. Uh, describe that problem, you know, and why we need to confront it head on. Well, pure, yeah, natura, natura pura or pure nature, which uh, rose out of scholastic uh, uh, philosophy and theology in the early modern period. And it, which is an, out, an outgrowth of uh, nominalism in a way. So it came from the Franciscans. Um, Rene Descartes, for instance, was trained in pure nature theology, which, was, and it, which is what allowed him to come to the conclusion that, you know, the, to to separate this, the world from the supernatural and the natural, right? Mm-hmm. And that's and it's a false dichotomy, but that's how he separated. So he was only going to concentrate on what's measurable, what he could think, right? Mm-hmm. And we cannot we cannot guess at the supernatural, right? Um, and the other part of that, so the pure nature theologians and philosophers, that, that whole argument was based on whether or not God's grace could be absent from any place in the creation, right? Right. I mean, think about that. I mean, if you ask, you know, a teenage, you know, say a, a seriously religious Catholic teenager or even adult, what would, how do you think they would answer that question? They would, a serious one. I mean, their instincts, I'd say before they got corrupted, would say it can't be. But uh, if they were trained in the Catholic Church, they're saying, well, of if, they were, if they were trained in, in yeah, they would, they would, you know, according to, according to this or that, right? Yeah, would, no, right. But you're kind of intuitive and instinctive. No, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it's unconscious. Right, right. It's, un- it's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, even from the pure na- nature theologians and and uh, like Suarez was one of them, and uh, and theologians and philosophers, they it was just speculative. They mm-hmm. didn't think there was anything either, but they were just wondering if it was possible. Yeah, right. Like, it's in a way it's like what are you guys even talking about mm-hmm. <laughs> right why are we doing this but that led to so much i mean um right now i think pure nature theology led exactly to i'm in the wrong body yeah right oh 100 right? yeah i mean that's pure nature right there yeah you know, and a lot of people, when they try to get like outside of this, do you agree <clears throat> that we're talking about something similar to when Barfield you know, talked about their superstition of outness, you know, that there's something out there. Yeah. So that when I one thing I think that turns people off to maybe what we're talking about is uh, people are um, people are prone to quote Heisenberg, which is 100 percent true. He's relevant to this discussion. Absolutely. But so they just talk about, um, you know, his work. But, you know, when I remind people, the simple one for me is to say. For college students, even when you're measuring a glass of water, you're slightly altering the temperature of that glass of water by that measurement you put in there. So the sense that there's something out in this, that we have this radical objectivity, you know, this way of looking at the world, um, that there's something out there that is not, and we're going to get into the word participatory metaphysics, but um, quite often, you know, we say, oh, since quantum physics, nobody can believe that anymore. But instead of giving concrete examples like the thermometer 
um, influencing the water, uh, we we tend to just invoke like Heisenberg and say that everybody gets it. And I think those of us who want to help unpack this a little bit, um, I remember, and I might have told the story before, but it was real to me where, um, you know, you can see it more. A friend of mine who lived down the road, about five houses down, he had a family and we were told that they had a sociologist coming to study the behavior of packs of boys. And I grew up literally, you know, in the 1980s in, in a suburb. And our life was like Super 8. It was like, um, um, you know, any of those movies where, you know, 50 kids on big Stranger, wheels and so forth. Stranger Things. Stranger Things, was- yeah. Super 8 was Steven Spielberg's. They caught it. Stranger Things. It's kind of there in E.T. But the, um, you know, all we, the sociologist was kind of watching us. And he thought he was just like, he said, don't let me interfere with how you behave. But it was our worst behavior week ever. We became monsters, monsters. We tortured a kid. And everything. So it's just another example of worldview. Of yeah. course, changes things you're looking at. You know, yeah. <laughs> so we just have to let go of that superstition. When I when I'm explaining quantum mechanics or quantum physics to my students, I always go, "Well, you know, scientists have concluded. You know, quantum scientists have concluded that phenomena behave differently while being looked at, like my kids, right? My kids behave differently while they're being looked at. Yep. And when I'm not looking at them, they behave a different way." <laughs> Yeah, we all know that, right? Yeah, it's like when Barfield says that that view of outness, um, he goes, it's um, methodically fruitful, but ontologically fictitious, right? That says it all. Yeah, it can be used to control things. It's useful as a heuristic for a certain period of time and a certain thing to get us, you know, into the scientific method that gets closer and closer to an ever receding truth. But it's it's ontologically fictitious, right? Turns into an idol. Yep. And uh, sociology seems... It would the field of sociology that the you know the the, the sociological thing um, takes us for granted. You know that yeah. uh, we and get that's this. That's one thing that concern. I mean, and and I see people proposing this or that kind of sociology out there, right? And what bugs me is so much of it is just intellectual gamesmanship. Who's doing this? Is there names? You don't have to throw any names. Name. <laughs> Some people are trying to define sociology, is what you're they're saying. Trying to, well, they're just trying to turn it into a philosophy among other philosophies, right? Okay, yeah. yeah. And which is doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's why, you know, I think there was somebody, I think they were reviewing my book, uh, The Incarnation of the Poetic Word, saying that I have a my theory, I have an anti-theoretical theory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Which, and I think sociology is like that because it's not, you know, a system. Mm-hmm. It's, and that's why the closest thing I, I can compare it to is phenomenology because, and you can see this too. I'm not just making this up. This is not just, if you look through the history of phenomenology and I would start with Goethe mm-hmm. and Franz Brentano, Husserl, Rudolf Steiner, Edith Stein, Pope John Paul II, you know, going down the line where these people who are phenomenologists would, they would almost invariably had a religious turn by doing it because something shown through the phenomena in which they were witnessing. And which is why Goethe called his... uh, his method reverence right mm-hmm. because you know you're it's, you feel like you're before a being right 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 and 
And this is, and at Goethe, and, and it's interesting, so often, so many of these people who were doing that kind of phenomenology that, and Husserl is a good example of it. It not only did, was it science and philosophy, but it also becomes theology. And you can also see how it's related to the arts. Mm -hmm. Remember, um, well, I wasn't talking, so last week, a couple of weeks ago, I was on Grail Country. We were talking about meditations of the tarot. And we were talking about music. You know, if you were to play a piece of instrumental music, right? And it conjures up whatever kinds of emotions or thoughts or feelings. And very often, you know, the same piece of music will have similar resonances with different people, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how can that happen? How can how is that even possible that that would happen? Right, right, right. Right? What is it in this phenomenon? Because, you know, when we listen to music in, you know, attentively, you know, and because it, it, music is a good example, because when you're listening to music, you're usually not thinking at the same time, yeah, right? Yeah. Or judging, you're just letting it happen, right? Mm -hmm. And we have those moments and, and where something shines through the music and overwhelms us. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a revelation of something divine. In fact, it very often is a revelation of something divine. Absolutely. But people have the same experience with maybe poetry or something, you know, the sciences and observation in science. Um, or they have it in nature, right? You know, I mean, the kind of like the go-to example is the sunset, but it doesn't have to be a sunset. It could be any, like I was talking about the bees. It could be that. There's a revelation that happens. And you realize that, and, and, and feel, you have the experience that it's almost like looking at a window and you're seeing yourself, your reflection in the window, and all of a sudden you see somebody from the other side. Right? right, right, and it's kind of uns <laughs> disarming, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that's that's I've never a, heard of that example. That's uh, a good one. That's a kind yeah. of uh, phenomenological, sociological disposition that yeah. that yeah. you need to cultivate, right? We need right, to and let's stay on that word cultivate because somebody, and I don't think would have to be <laughs> an ignoramus, would say that accusation that you have a theory about not having a theory. Then they will say you still have a theory. Um, very important in your book is the notion that when you said um, it's a disposition, but I also want to say it's about um, raising our levels of perception. And in your book, you have a great quote from von Balthasar, you know, saying the supernatural is not there in order to supply that part of our natural capacities we have failed to develop. Yeah. I love that phrasing because then the onus is on us. He's saying, dude, don't hold. It's not my fault if you haven't worked at raising your levels of perception. Then he continues. The same Christian centuries, which masterfully knew how to read the natural world's language of forms, were the same ones which possessed eyes trained first to perceive the formal quality of revelation by the aid of grace and its illumination, and second, and only then, to interpret revelation. So the notion of raising levels of perception, here I'm thinking about just the title of Steiner's book, How to See Higher Worlds, yeah. and how disciplined it is. You need seven steps in the moral world to raise one in the perceptual world. You know, and so how about that? Like those moral commandments without the increases in the perceptual world, those become tyrannical every time. You know, right. that's where you get William Blake with his justified protest about this nonsense and so forth. But let's stay with the disposition and raising the levels of perception. Um, because I was, you know, I met with some people from a local graduate school and we were talking about changes. Um you know, that could be called forth in our time. It's where I went, St. Bernard's, great school. 
but we were trying to figure out, you know, what um, I digressed with them and said, I once wrote an article for our local newspaper from my position as a campus minister. And I think it was like secondhand Ivan Illich, but it's to think that like when the Western university got separated from the monasteries, sometime after that, our universities, which are now religions in their own right, they have multiple problems. You and I discussed ad nauseum. Yeah. But um, one of their biggest problems is the it's the we are the only culture that thought people could engage in higher education without having a spiritual practice. So that in the Islamic world, you have madrasas mm-hmm. and you have spiritual practice. In um, in Confucianism, you certainly had spiritual practice. Right. The yeshivas in and Judaism and so forth. But um, you know, it, I don't think it's daily mass. But, you know, phenomenology is one, but this, again, kind of do your Mike Martin thing on uh, raising levels of perception. I think it's so crucial because I also think it's an entrance point because I do believe people are hungry for it. We can disabuse them of the notion that we're seeing farther. You know, we're we're the latest century. We must seem farther. But no, no, no. I just point to like Psalm 139, 13. Truly, you have formed my inmost being. You knit me in my mother's womb. How everybody yeah. felt their reins, their livers. We don't even feel them anymore. And furthermore, they they cross culturally. They knew their livers were connected to the plant milk thistle. You know, the planet, uh, presumably Venus. I don't. Um, so we have fallen levels of perception. We have narrower perception that we've used to for a lot of control. But this kind of wide scopic perception has regressed. You know. Well, I think, and it's the thing is, that, you know, if you say higher perception, it sounds it sounds like it's a hard thing to do, yeah. and it is a hard thing to do because it's so easy, you know. And because and to do that, I mean, this is what where phenomenology comes in again. You just have to, you know, in, in phenomenology, it's called the epoche, right? Where you mm-hmm. you bracket your 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 assum- your assumptions, your prior knowledge about something, and just shut up and stand before the phenomena let it speak to you right um is that harder than you're making it sound though or no oh yeah it's it's it's, it's harder than it, than it sounds it's hard because it's so easy yeah right 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 the thing is we don't know how to do that we don't know how to shut up right especially in, in our our day and age and we don't know how to to turn it off right <laughs> yeah. so, one, one thing i tell people to do right which i think is very simple and it's super healing for me because when i get out to the farm in the morning you know part of me was like i think it's done i think it's done i think it's done but so i always make myself when i'm filling the trough for the cows to drink out of i go because part of me is like okay i gotta get to the next thing but i go wait stop just listen to all the what how many birds can you identify that you can mm-hmm. hear right now and and somehow that kind of grounds me, right? And yep. it's a very simple thing. Now that's not, I would not call that higher perception, but it's a stage towards it yep. because it's paying attention to what's really in front of you or what's mm-hmm. before you. That's why I like the Martin Charles give 12 secret names to a tree. You know, I, I do yeah. want to help people. We need very intro phenomenology. You know, the people who founded it, they they might start pretty advanced. You know, you and I've talked, I think offline. Uh-huh. I'm practicing it more and more. Like right now, I'm probably much more aware than I was even six months ago that right over here is the west over there is the east that's the north you know the north is associated with uh you know the earth the east is associated with the spring and uh sylphs and air the west is associated with water it's right. associated with salamanders the south is associated with heat i mean 
no, the water's not salamanders, uh, undines. The south is heat. It's the salamanders. It's um, all this stuff. And wherever you are, I try to locate myself. And I think these right. are little practices like that are preparatory lessons that could be like first grade, second grade, third grade. Yeah. But I think we need, do you know somebody doing this hard work? Because you're right. I, you're right. Bracket it. But I think there are preparatory things we could do. Well, and this is a part of the paying attention. Um, that So another thing that's similar to that, that, that I tell people to do, you know, when they come, like when I had a, last month, I had a biodynamic farming and gardening workshop. And I always ask them, okay, I'll, we'll go out to the, onto the farm. I'll go, okay, where's the sun? And oh, it's right there. Okay, where's the moon? Mm -hmm. and unless they can see it they don't know where it is you know so, so tell people how they would start practicing that where are they going to practice learning <clears throat> how where it is right now and it's paying attention and the thing is the moon moves so quickly it goes all the way around the zodiac in a month mm -hmm. you know and and to pay attention to where where the moon is every night and and then you could always add the other planets as well right now you're seeing it too in the evening, Venus is in the sky in the, in the right. sitting west. Uh, but other times of the year, Venus is the morning star. Mm -hmm. um, so just paying attention to where you are in the cosmos in relationship to things, which is mm -hmm. the same thing I was talking about with doing with, uh, you know, listening to how many birds I can identify while I'm filling the truck, the yeah, water. Right, right. But but these kinds of practices are are grounding and humanizing, and it's not they're not fancy. It's not no. like, you know, some complicated Buddhist, you know, meditation or anything. It's just Couldn't there be a regeneration of like a childhood Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox faith formation by just doing this stuff instead of like their religion textbooks. And this is becoming a child again. This is, yeah, yeah. this is what Thomas Traherne is always talking about, you know, how do you become a child again? Well, we right. remember being children and, you know. Thomas Turner's most famous poem, Wonder, How Like an Angel Came I Down. Mm -hmm. How bright are all things here, when first among his work, works I did appear. Mm -hmm. Right? And 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 that in these practices help us to recapture a little bit of that that we lost. Do you have a practice that you use for memory? So think of uh, the Memorare, um, even the Hail Mary. Uh, certainly the Our Mother Prayer of Tomberg, the word remember is in there about 50 times. Right. I'm exaggerating. Remember, almost gracious. So um, what would be a spiritual discipline of memory if you sat down and you wanted to remember something? Um, you know, it's a big theme. You remember people heard Tara Theek, you and I talking about getting Peter Beagle on, the author of The Last Unicorn. It's, it's, the, it's a genius novel on memory. Do you ever just try to consciously remember things from your childhood or how do you, how would you invoke Traherne or a discipline of memory? I've been oh, thinking well, about this think lately it, myself. So it's a real I, question. When I try to do that, I don't try to enter my childhood again. <laughs> I mean, it, my, my, my way of going backwards in memory, but to enter the disposition of a child again. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. That wonder. To how do we enter into that? And I, and, it, and again, it's a, it's something you need to cultivate. I mean, it's, yeah. so it means you have to do it on a regular basis, right? Right. You know, I've always seen I've always seen a, a connection between, you know, most popularized, very useful. Maybe it's 
somewhat incomplete, but the power of now Eckhart Tolle, you know, for me, the divine feminine, I encourage anybody say any Marian prayer, we hear the word Mary, think of the now. And we can remember just like repopulate that if more of us were living in the present moment, we're remembering the now, you know, so I try to take good portions of every day, just making sure I'm in the present moment. And um, I know that's connected to phenomenology. I know it's connected to sociology. Well, you know, this in the story of Isis and Osiris, right? When Osiris is scattered into pieces across the the, the world and Isis right, has to right. pieces and put she is literally remembering him. Yeah. Yeah. Putting yeah. him back together, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I and I and it's kind of I mean, so in a way, Tomber talks about memory, different kinds of types of memory moral memory mechanical it's good right he says when we're young i mean people would find this fascinating like when we're young we have great just like we can remember remember all the facts as we get older we can only remember things by their association and when we get older still we can only remember things by the love we feel for them so you know i've often wondered is there an explanation for something like alzheimer's in that in a more technocratic Uh world if we haven't saturated ourselves and our memories with love there's nothing left because as yeah. we age, we lose that factual memory. Then we lose the associative memory. All we have in those uh, years when we should be seers and helping the world is this loving memory. And we should be speaking from that. The atrophy of the others, it could be a real blessing, but people are hitting those ages without many loving memories. We've all moved 20 times. So we don't have loving memories. That's one thing that I learned from the monastery. You know, these monks, they love their surroundings. You know, they go to other beautiful monasteries. I'm thinking of Snowmass, Massachusetts, up in the Rockies. It's literally a coffee table book on every page, every vista. Yeah. But our monks go there for a meeting of Trappist and they miss they miss their 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 sighting of the hill every night. And again, where the sun sets on that hill oh, at yeah. the Abbey of the Genesee, right? And that's loving memories. And yeah. when we the hypermobility that constitutes our culture uh, desiccates so many of those memories. Yeah, and it's like that's why it's. It's tough for me to leave the farm. <laughs> I just feel torn away. Yeah. It's, it's hard. But but I think but I think cultivating sense of place, mm-hmm. you know, a presence, you know, practicing the presence, I think great uh a great tool for in, in for kind of a sociological disposition. This that really helped me was uh the the cloud of unknowing. Mm-hmm. Right, where in the cloud of unknowing, the advice for prayer is, well, don't you know, don't use a whole bunch of words. Okay, in fact, may, maybe just one word. And how about just one word of one syllable? Just use that as a prayer and, and mm-hmm. make it as simple as possible. And that, and through that, you enter the cloud of unknowing. Well, and and I think that from that's this moment where the the kind of veil between the worlds disappears. Right. Mm-hmm. And because the, the cloud of knowing, I mean, that method of prayer is disarming the intellect is all it is. Right. 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 It's disarming the intellect. And this is why, uh, especially uh, Sergei Blagakov uh, calls Sophia the metaxu, the right. between. Right. She's the the connect the connective tissue between the natural and the supernatural. That's that right. area of overlap that Rowan yes. Williams was talking it's about. Important. Right? And, and another person who picked up on that quite a bit is uh, the Irish Catholic philosopher, uh, William Desmond, right? Yeah. I think it's there in Eric Vogelin, too. You know, I've got things I love about Vogelin, things I don't, but he's great on anamnesis, memory, 
and he's great on the attack. So, you know, Michael, the, um, uh, in your book, you know, and I think people are yearning for this too, because I think it's very timely, uh, setting the stage a little bit, the relationship between theology and philosophy, you know, right now with these questions, we'll have this William Kavanaugh on soon. And the notion that, you know, it seems like, um, once we realize that everything is a religion, you know, that wokeism is a religion, um, university life is a religion, scientism is a religion. Um, we know that everybody is kind of, you know, working from a metaphysics, the notion that we believe for a long time in this country, that you could set up what was called a neutral public square upon which we met, you know, right. shorn of most of our characteristics. And we could speak as, I don't know, like a desiccated human being that, that was leaving fast, you know? Um, and so now we, we know that everybody has like a metaphysics. So it allows a certain type of person to say, it's all theological now. And I think there's a partial truth to that. I really do. But in your book, The Submerged Reality, you think, you know, you're associating sophiology with a breakdown that I think is helpful between theology and philosophy. Tell, tell the listeners how you get at that. Um, well, I mean, you know, way back in the day, theology was the queen of the sciences right mm -hmm. but i think what happens and that's why in uh my book what is it called <laughs> the incarnation of the poetic word it's you know it's philosophical essays on, on literature and theology and theological essays on philosophy and literature because you don't know the difference anymore after a while yeah. and this is what you see in uh Jean-Luc Jean Mario, Mario. Yeah, and right, and right. William Desmond and, mm -hmm. and I think all of it. You see this in, in actually the later Derrida as well, mm -hmm. where, I mean, philosophy, if it is a quest for meaning and a quest for, you know, the answers to the, the basic life questions, how should we live, right? Yeah. You can't help but get to theology. And I would not... I, when I think, when I say that, I don't mean theology, I don't mean academic theology, right? Like you would, you have a department at Notre Dame, for instance, of academic theology, and there's this kind of theologian. I don't, that's not, not what I mean at all. I mean, theologos, right? The the the, the word of, of God. That's what you get to. And this is what happens. And this, but I, and this is what you, this is what I mentioned earlier with all those philosophers who through phenomenology came to a religious turn mm -hmm. because if you're being intellectually honest you can't deny what is happening right 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 you can't deny your own experience well, like great example from edith stein you know whom i dedicated my book uh the heavenly country to her um i mean she was a kind of agnostic jew and she was a phenomenologist. She she was a she was the assistant to Edmund Husserl. I mean, you don't get any more phenomenological than that. And she was staying at a friend's house, and he had to go out. He and his wife had to go out for the night, and so she was okay. I'll just hang out in the library. And she pulled out the autobiography of Teresa of Avila mm. and read the whole thing in one night. Yeah. And when she stopped, she, she finished the book. She put it down. She said, "This is the truth." Mm -hmm. Because she couldn't deny, even at, with all of her intellectual training, you know, the revelation of truth, because yeah. that's what the philosopher is dedicated to, mm -hmm. right? A lover of wisdom. Oh, my God, right? My if a philosopher is the lover of, of Sophia, 
you know, that that's where philosophy becomes not maybe theology is the wrong word, but that's where it becomes um, mysticism or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it seems to me, too, that like um, exactly what we're talking about, like quantum mechanics, outness and so forth, that it's hard to break down theology well, in, in some part the the divisions are fine. They can hold a little bit, but the divorce, especially as it's found in analytic philosophy, right. you know, can't be sustained oh God, anymore yeah. once you, you know, well, you know so that's just from- a parlor game. Yep. Heisenberg's thing, right? The, the first, the first sip of the cup of science, you become an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you, right? Uh, I, I haven't heard that one, but yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah. Um. How about one? A couple more. We've got a, you know, um, you also, you know, this is so implicit, probably in every sentence we've uttered since the beginning of this podcast. But when I was writing the review of your book, um, you know that. Uh, in order to get at a sociological worldview, we have to question, I think anybody who's listened to us, they wouldn't listen to more than one episode if they couldn't get beyond praising too much about the Enlightenment. Um, but And they know that uh, from, again, every sentence we utter, that the scientific revolution has <laughs> got some issues. But just to speak <laughs> specifically to the scientific revolution again, you know, and again, it's because it's playing into all of these things. It's not participatory. It's ignoring them. It's methodically fruitful, but ontologically fictitious. But in your book, that's a big thing. And some young people still need to be like set free from that alternative religion, the scientific revolution. Um, And and I think that's absolutely true. And that's um, at at the 17th century that was going down, right? mm -hmm. There were a group of intellectuals who were fighting against that. And and they're now dismissed as crackpots. And I'm thinking of Thomas Vaughn and Robert Flood and Henry Vaughn, metaphysical poet and twin brother of Thomas. And they they looked at what was happening with with Descartes and Francis Bacon and and the, the scientific revolution that was only worried about quantity, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, measurement. And they said, no, 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 no. You're losing it. You're lo- you know, you're you're only paying attention to half the world. And so they were trying, they were, we would call them traditionalists. Mm-hmm. They were trying to maintain that traditional uh, picture. And you, you mentioned with the Silts and Undines and Gnomes and, and uh, the other one. <laughs> uh, salamanders. Salamanders. You know, uh, they, that was a poetic language they were using to describe realities, right? That was, they were using, there was a language of qualities, not quantities. Mm-hmm. And they knew they they instinctively knew and morally knew that to you know this is Rene Guénon right his his book the reign of quantity mm-hmm. what's going to happen when you go into the reign of quantity is not going to be good no right right and we're there right now right yeah um, that's why in, in the the submerged reality the what's the first chapter called the repercussions of a, of a left brain theology right i didn't know you were quoting left brain theology in there you know that's i'm caught up in that stuff but you're right i mean obviously left I mean, brain, brain happens, hemispheric yeah. stuff is definitely tied to sophiology and what per, not one person I, I do mention you know i have a bit on in that book and we talked a lot about before is riddle steiner mm-hmm. was part of that uh not really enlightenment more german idealism but he was out of that enlightenment tradition and trying to bring the spirit back into the sciences, which is why Steiner called his 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 approach spiritual science, mm-hmm. right? And, and he was trying, uh, he was working out of that tradition that Vaughn and 
Robert Flood were working out of. Now it's interesting, even today, that was I did a, that, that this uh conversation on sex and Christianity today. And who was that for? Are you not at liberty to say? No, it was with uh on Paul Vanderclay's channel. Oh, okay. Doing him. And, yeah. and Nate was on it. Nate jumped okay. on it. Yeah, yeah. But then I had to leave toward the end before to go catch catch those bees. <laughs> uh-huh. But uh um where was I going with this? Uh it was science. Science. Re- re- rewind sex and Christianity. <laughs> Something you were saying on the well, the um, and maybe that'll come back to you. You know, I think again, what a seminal chapter. It's so easy for us. It's so easy for us. But and I know it's done pretty well on a YouTube. People Googled uh-huh. Owen Barfield and the word rainbow, right? You know, the opening chapter to saving the appearances that, um, you know, you see a rainbow and you get closer to it, you know, and is it, is it really there? Do you touch it? And he breaks it down, the experience of seeing a rainbow, right. you know, into detail. Then essentially goes, a tree is the same thing, right? Yeah. And that's oh. the participatory. And here's what I was talking So yeah. this, this commentary on there is it was, again, it was, oh, Mike, Michael Martin's an esotericist. And that's why he does this whole divine feminine thing with his bunk. Um, but the thing is, I'm not. I mean, I don't think of myself as that at all. I think of myself as kind of a traditionalist. <laughs> but my traditionalism is probably medieval or early modern, which, you know, if you read Pacino, you read Pico right. de la Mirandola, you read, you know, they were, they were, they, that was, to me, that was a healthy religion that was not only was it Catholicism, but it was connected to the cosmos. And mm-hmm. since that time, and we know this, the church has increasingly become disconnected from the cosmos. It has. Right. And we know this because uh, if you read through um, literature over the course of history and English literature is my, my specialty, but they would mark times, not by months and years, but by the festival season. Mm -hmm. So written at Martinmas, you know, 1642 or, Michaelmas, or however they're sketching time. If yep. we look, everything at, had a prior season and a tide to it, you know. Right, and and Teresa of Avila, right? She didn't have a watch, mm-hmm. so and she would in her autobiography talk. She talks about her her visions of of Jesus, and she said, "Well, it probably didn't take longer than a creed, yeah, or it didn't take. It was about the length of a of a, of a pater noster, mm-hmm. right? That's how she made measured time, and we don't do that anymore." And the church yeah. doesn't do that anymore. You know, I right? came up with something this weekend that um, I, I when I was running the parish, I was uh, I was working with a great group of people, and we were meeting with some parents. We just began meeting with some parents about um, screens after mass, like screen usage in their family, just some accountability structures, and then we started hanging our reflections on the seasons like you know that we're now meeting in advent you know what is that what is the stuff going on and now we're meeting in christmas and now we're meeting in um the season after christmas around uh, candlemas and now we're meeting in lent and we just did pentecost but you know how like we have all these um it's kind of truisms in the catholic world that like we baptized old pagan shrines or we you know or aquinas baptized aristotle but we began these reflections um on michaelmas and we ended, we're going to have a bonfire in uh, three weeks or two weeks on St. John's Day. Good. And I think we can baptize. So when when you're a graduate school, or at least my experience, when I'd take courses on liturgy, 
you know, we talk about the liturgical year, but we say, gosh, um, it's not even that the January to December year trumps that, which it kind of does. But in fact, it's the school year that dominates everything. And I think yours truly, me and these people, what we did is we baptized that school year, which is the one we all surf, from Michaelmas to St. John's Day, right? Yeah. Do you see the power of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, uh, and that's the thing. I mean, in, in, how do sociological. We, it is absolutely sociological. Yeah. And here's the thing, and I write in the, the Submerged Reality, one of the observations I make is that, you know, people who identify as neo-pagan for instance mm -hmm. basically what they're doing is they're doing medieval catholicism without catholicism right right, right? so they're 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 doing beltane or solstice or whatever they're doing you know all all their observations or all their their celebratory i shouldn't say all but so many of their their celebrations are rooted in christian tradition and the christian festival tradition and and the christian folk festival tradition right and in fact, uh, our our buddy Addison Hart, mm -hmm. last week I think it was, or maybe even earlier this week, posted on his Substack um, just a, a link to and a recommendation of a British BBC television program from maybe twelve years ago called Tudor Monastery Farm. Right? Yeah, you say that's a great show. Yeah. It is so good, and it, it shows the ritual year, and it shows how. Not only was it connected to the land and to the cosmos, but it was it was what connected the community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's what bound the community together. I really think, I really think even Catholic churches should just take not just this idea of Martin Mr. St. John's Day, but like let the whole textbook thing go and let's be that institution that I mean, takes the kids outside, notices the season. Every every faith formation class call it what you will, we're aligning ourselves with north, south, east, and west, above, here, and below. And that's really all we need. And uh, right. the churches will be filled. So hear me show you something there, Mike. Yeah, I'm in. 1932, got the imprimatur from 1932. Okay. It is... Get you the... Is it throw out your faith formation books and take every kid outside? It's a Liber Usualis. Misa okay. at Opici, masses and offices. Mm -hmm. And we use this for house church for, for the readings, right? Because, because these were the consistent readings. It wasn't, I don't know when they, they did this probably in the 60s where it went to liturgical year A, B, and C. Yeah, yeah. Come on. That is disconnected. What's the point with it? <laughs> I agree with you. Like it's all I know and I can map it onto the seasons decently. Like there's some beauty to it. And uh, but yet I see your point. Yeah. Well, it's not connected to the seasons. It's connected yeah. to bureaucracy. I mean, uh -huh. Easter and Christmas come up, of course. But in general, there's there's not a rhythm to it. Right. Right. There's not a rhythm to it. Mm -hmm. it it's not really a rhythm, a three year rhythm. Um, this I mean, the rhythm, the church. And this is what the, the church did for thousands of years. Right. Mm -hmm. What I just showed mm -hmm. you. And that's what the tradies are attracted to, you know. Yeah. And if you go to the Eastern churches, they have, you know, the Sunday after Easter is Thomas Sunday, and it's always Thomas Sunday. And the gospel readings are always, almost always consistent. Yeah. Right. On feasts or on, on these days. Now, it, and, and I mean, there, there are, there's room to criticize that, I suppose. But what it does, though, is, and this is what we, we learn as a Waldorf teacher, you know, if you have a kid who, 
has a learning disability, one of the things we say is, well, rhythm replaces strength. Yeah, you've mentioned that. That's great. Right? So, you know, slow and steady wins the race. You just keep, mm -hmm. you know, keep at it and you keep the rhythm going mm -hmm. and that carries everything else with it, right? Yep. It strengthens the body. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think we have, we've somewhat lost. Yeah. It, I guess I'm so worried with these kind of moving epiphany and moving all these other days. Like I know there's oh, yeah. a lot of nobility, like, so I, my battles have are mostly there, but your point is well taken. Yeah. But you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Say you know, today is the feast of the sacred hearts. So there's great symbolism in there for, uh, you know, or we, if it was the same and it is this one, if we were aware of it, um, we could, I'm sure, uh, I don't know, think of images of the sacred hearts kind of burning like a sun yeah. and so forth. We're getting close to the solstice. Uh, pretty cool that St. John's Day falls on a Saturday this year. So we have a church bonfire. Um, I think it should be pretty well attended. And, nice. uh, you know, everybody's doing their part, I suppose. Well, I so, with, yeah. with St. John's Day, right? We're, uh, I mean, it's beautiful because at that moment where the, it's the sun, the days get shorter right around that, right? Yep. Yeah. And what does John say when he sees Jesus? I must decrease and he That's must right. increase. Yeah. Right. Which is what happens, right? Yep. Yep. Really beautiful. I want to take a moment to, uh, because it's it's out of the divine feminine, I found this book very sociological, and I think it's kind of a diamond in the rough. Um, a monk over at the Abbey of the Genesee, Augustine Jackson, has a book. You can Google it on Amazon.com. It's called Creation Song. And he, he begins, Michael, by having an image and i told him and he goes like because i know it's true but he almost pictures like minarets but he um people calling out the hours he pictures like mary elizabeth and anna singing to their babies the psalms at that point not so much the song of songs singing and so creation song is this book and what it's really he's trying to highlight a neglected part of augustine i'm going to say augustine is the church father of the left brain kind of machine approach to christianity yeah. but his expositions on the psalms are his his one right brain creation uh -huh. and augustine this brother augustine says that he just couldn't go because of his past he couldn't go into the song of songs you know there was this great repression but yeah. then he talks about these tributaries the psalms and how through gregory the great um bead uh william saint theory and uh saint bernard of how that married with the song of songs and led to some beautiful stuff cool for brother augustine he also says it wasn't enough there was still this kind of masculine bellicose thing that saint bernard who put the song of songs on the map in a new way also preached the third crusade this guy is yeah. brilliant and what he's saying is you know the creation song that was sung there but he's so aware in this book that right now he doesn't use brain hemispheric stuff but it makes us know that church renewal is uh, like the musical Hades Town. You know, I can't say enough about it. It's all based on we've forgotten the song and Orpheus yeah. and Eurydice have to discover a song again. And the notion of this kind of shit world we're living in in Hades Town is the seasons are out of tune. The yeah. seasons are out of tune, and he's got to discover his song. And this book that this monk wrote, um, the cool thing about it, you go to Amazon.com. I'm not even saying buy it. These free samples you get where they give you a preface or something, it kind of shows the genius there. I encourage you to do it. But I'm saying that like very few people are going to buy it. It's one of these big books. And to flesh out the Song of Songs, I mean, the Psalms, he has a lot of images in there, too, because he wants to make them alive. So it's probably unnecessarily expensive. But it's um, it's going to be one of these weird books that uh, I was I felt as I was kind of reviewing it, really fortunate to even stumble upon it and to think that, yes, in some monasteries, some people are doing the work 
Good. producing these things. Good to hear. And the guy discovered the song. You know, he just he's heard the psalm so much, and they're just in his body. So that's called Creation Song. You can Google that with uh, Augustine Jackson. He's the monk. Um, what are you reading now? What am I reading? <laughs> I'm re I'm reading actually. I'm reading a couple different things. I'm reading the poetry of A. E. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I'm reading Rudolf Steiner's Big fan book. of fairies, right? Fairies. Yes, he's big on fairies. And Rudolf, yeah. Rudolf Steiner's book, uh, The Book of Revelation and the Work of the Priest. Which okay. Yeah. And also, I'm <laughs> reading The Butlerian Jihad from the, the Dunes. The Butlerian Jihad. Say more about that one. It's a, it's in the Dunes. My son told me I had to read it. He said, Dad, you got to read this book. Because it's in the, if you know Dune, this, yeah. this is a prequel to Dune. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And it's when they, well, it's, it's timely. This is why I'm reading it. Because it's when they have a war against the AIs. Okay. And then wow. after this, they declare there can be no thinking machines, which is why yeah. in you don't see any computers. Yeah. Right? Uh, it, when you mention AI, I'm going to say something I've said a couple of times. You know, couldn't we, with this idea of raising our levels of perception, which is another way of saying raising our consciousness. Um, again, Von Balthasar, I just loved, he, he put it on us. Hey, bro, it's on you if you didn't yeah. do this, you know, so AI is going to take over you, but hopefully there can be some of us. Now That's they might yeah. blow up the world. We have to be aware, yeah, no, but raise your levels of perception so that it doesn't mirror a machine, a machine, you know? Yeah. And that's it. And that's the, I, I that's what's going to happen with education. I already think I've been seeing uh, papers written by AI from students. Yeah. Which is too bad because part of, I mean, as we know, part of the idea of struggling through trying to get the right words on the page. If there's an inner spiritual activity that happens as we do that. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, talk about part of your soul and your brain atrophying at the same time. Yeah. Right. And I think that's, yeah. that's a real danger. And it's spiritual yeah. inertia then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, a guest coming up in the near term, I think next week and the week after Eugene McCarraher, if our listeners want to like watch some of his YouTubes on video, kind of prepare yourself. You know, sometimes they want us to mention books we've discussed. I'll get better at that. We're doing some of that now. And Bill Kavanaugh, Google any of his, uh, you know, the myth of Christian violence is a great YouTube lecture. Um, anything on the migration of the holy, any lecture Bill Kavanaugh has got. Um, you know, if people are looking to kind of flesh out these conversations, some learning they can do on their own, um, we can help kind of name drop like that. So, Michael, I thought this was long overdue. You know, I was thinking about sophiology. Yeah, no kidding. And so, and who better to talk to than my good friend? Uh, you know, because again, we know, I didn't know it's as pronounced as you made it sound, but people are trying to turn this thing into a science, right? Yeah, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll have to, uh, we'll have to talk more about that, how to kind of stop that. Maybe we have to take recourse to, um, I don't know. Well, you know, I, I, I think it's just, most of the people I see doing that are kind of younger than we are. Yeah. And I think when you're in your 30s or 20s, you know, it's it, it becomes a kind of an intellectual game. You're trying to gain knowledge and information like data, right? Yeah. But but I'm more interested in gaining wisdom. Yeah, right? it's like these young guys who are listening to Andrew Tate or something and they think like, you know, relationships to women can be put into a machine. You know, so God bless them if they want to say that, but you and I will keep on reading Dante and Soloviev and, and things learn, like that. and learning woodworking and gardening, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, well, good luck with that uh, new hive. Yes, thank hope you. you. Name every one of your bees. And um, I think we're, uh, I'll post this tomorrow. Right now, we're recording on a Friday evening. This should be up tomorrow morning. 
And uh, look forward to seeing you next week. We'll be with uh, Eugene McCarraher. Take it easy, buddy. God bless everybody. All right. God bless you. See ya.